Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 370th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. I have said it many times, I am a lifelong learner, and I am excited to let you know about a unique global online event made just for those of us who want to grow our own food. In this four-day online learning opportunity, a collection of visionary growers, gardeners, permaculturists, and homesteaders share garden hacks, slow tools, gadgets, and gardening technologies. Join tens of thousands of budding growers and learn how to save time, energy, and money while doing what you love most, growing your own food and medicine. Visit urbanfarm.org forward slash garden hacked to register for this free online summit. Today on our podcast, we have someone who sees forests as a valuable part of the agriculture system. We're talking with Steve Gabriel about forest farming. Steve is an ecologist, forest farmer, and educator living in the Finger Lakes region of New York State. He passionately pursues work that reconnects people to the forested landscape and supports them to grow their skills in forest stewardship. He is an agroforestry extension specialist for the Cornell Small Farm Program and co-owns Wellspring Forest Farm and School with his wife Elizabeth, where they produce mushrooms, maple syrup, duck eggs, pastured lamb, and elderberry extract, all from forest-based systems. The school hosts several educational programs each season with the goal of increasing people's understanding Understanding of healthy forests and how they can play a critical role in their stewardship. He is the author of two books, Farming the Woods and Silvo Pasture, both published by our friends at Chelsea Green. Welcome to the show today, Steve. Are you ready to rock the forest garden? Ready to go. Yes. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure, I'd love to. Thanks for the opportunity. So growing up in central New York, I was just well acquainted with the forest and the forest became my second home, you know, outside of my house. And I grew up in a neighborhood at the end of a cul-de-sac where when we moved there, we were the last house on that block and there was forest. At my age then, I thought we were looking at wild forests, but I come to learn now that it was really just abandoned farmland that had grown 
thrown back into woods and spent so many hours of my childhood wandering around in there and making forts and just exploring and building relationship. And so one day I came home from school and that forest was on fire. They were clearing the woods for development. So of course, over my childhood, I saw that neighborhood turn in from more natural place to a very developed place. And I think that's the root of what I see and how we can have a negative impact. And since then, it's been a journey of seeing how we can have a positive impact. Sometimes I like to say, or I've heard others say that, you know, we have this ecological footprint, but we can also leave a positive handprint on our ecosystems. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So high school time and college time was a lot of exploring that idea. I spent some time at the Findhorn Eco Village in Scotland. Ooh, nice. First learned about permaculture there and then came back to the Finger Lakes and really was lucky to hook up with some naturalists and some forest mentors. And we've been going ever since. So I'm embedded in the landscape that I grew up in and trying to rebuild that forest and bring it back into being. And all the while, you know, farming and growing things and making sure we feed our family. Cool. So I have a copy of your book here called Silvo Pasture, a guide to managing grazing animals, forage crops and trees in temperate farm ecosystems. So I have to be honest with you. I just learned that word when I picked up this book. I really didn't know what it meant. So can you dig in a little bit deeper about what Silvo pasturing is? Sure. It's funny because I think we've named something in the past like 30 or 40 years that used to just be called farming. (laughs) Right. So the idea of animals being embedded in a forested landscape is really quite old. Silvo pasture is a term that was coined 60s or 70s. There's not an exact date. And it's a combination of the word silviculture, which is really forestry, forest management. And pasture, of course, relies on the idea of animals grazing and seeking out food in the landscape. And so we're combining those two ideas of managing grazing animals, foraging, and then the trees as a relationship with the two. So how is that different than agroforestry? Yeah, so I like to think of agroforestry is sort of the umbrella. Agroforestry is much broader and it really is just any agricultural system that has some kind of production element and trees or forests. So silvopasture we might consider is one of the options. Forest farming is another one the USDA likes to name separately and that's often not with animals. That can be horticultural crops like mushrooms, you know, maple syrup, forest medicinals, these kind of things. And there's other practices as well such as windbreaks, riparian buffers which focuses around bringing trees and production into wet areas, you know, along creeks and in wetlands and that sort of thing. So agroforestry is kind of this overall encompassing idea that trees have a place in the way that we manage our gardens, our farms, and our homesteads, whatever scale they may be. Right. Wow. That's cool. So tell me a story of your discovery into this whole notion of silvo pasturing. Something happened. Tell me about that. Sure. I think one of the most potent stories that I tell time and time again is uh, just a couple of years ago in 2016. And I was already working on the book and I, I believed that the practice had some real potential. There's a lot of interest in grazing from the consumer end. There's a lot of interest in grass-fed animal products on the market. And it just seemed like a really interesting system, but I hadn't really you know, experienced the benefits firsthand. And we have a sheep flock here on the farm of about 50 sheep that we graze during the summer. And 2016 in New York State was a historic drought. It was one of the driest summers we'd seen on recorded history. I know you're from a dry part of the world, so you can probably understand the stress that that can cause. Oh, big time. We rotate our sheep around the farm. We move them every day or so. And we did our first rotation around. We came back to the start and we didn't have any forage for them. We had no pasture, we had no food. So obviously this caused a lot of stress. And we recognized that we had been focusing on the pastured areas of the property, but that there was a lot of wooded areas and a lot of woody vegetation. And we had 
haven't really paid attention to it. And it's often treated by folks as sort of wasteland or non-valuable. It's not really producing anything. Right. Those plants look great in the drought. You know, trees and woody plants can be much more drought tolerant, much more sustainable in terms of these kind of extremes that we're seeing with climate change. So we thought we'd give it a try. We put the sheep basically in the hedgerows and in the kind of scrubby, you know, what people call invasive brush, this sort of thing. And they survived on that for about 40 days until the grass started to grow again. And we didn't see any real change in production. And so it was a real lesson in the landscape having a lot to offer that we just didn't see until we really needed it. And that's really what we look at with silvopastures. Well, that's interesting. Now, how can we enhance that? How can I bring more of that idea you know, into our system so that the next time we get a drought, which will happen, we'll be even more prepared for that coming. Yeah, that kind of leads us into this whole philosophical question of the human perception of a forest. And is that wild concept getting in the way of seeing its potential? I'm really glad you asked that. This, this could be the, <laughs> the rest of the discussion. I think we are embedded in this idea of wild and it's embedded in our cultural narrative. And unfortunately, or fortunately, no matter which way you want to look at it, humans have touched the land landscape on this continent for millennia. Mm -hmm. And I think it just looks very different when we think of indigenous land management and indigenous relationship to land. And I've been exploring a lot of those aspects in my work, very different attitudes and perspectives than what we might think of as, you know, settlers and colonizers that came from Europe and really had this agrarian idea that land needed to be cleared and opened and plowed. And that was something this continent hadn't seen until that came over. And obviously there's some benefits to that for different production systems, but it also really skewed, I think, the modern notion of what a forest is. And I think exploring our relationship to that and sort of understanding that when we walk into a woods, it's not a wild place. It's a place that has actually had human impact. And to learn what that human impact is, what's good, what's bad, and what the potential is for the future, I think is really central to the work that I do. How does one that has not experienced wild start? Where do we start with that? I think we start with seeing ourselves as part of the system. You know, we're not outside of it. We might keep ourselves outside of it. We can step in anytime we want. And I think just spending time there and honing observation skills and really starting to understand, ask really good questions of the landscape. And it's amazing what you learn just from doing that. I didn't learn tree ID from, you know, a dendrology course in college or from a technical resource. I learned from observing the patterns of bark and of flowering and of leafing of the trees and building upon that knowledge season after season. And so I think I like to really say that relationship is where we start. We know how to, in our lives, cultivate good relationships, often with humans or with pets. We're really doing the same thing when we think about the woods. We're just getting to know each other and starting to learn the patterns and some of the characteristics that we can see through repetition show up again and again. And that's really how we build, I think, successful working relationships with these kind of ecosystems. Wow. You know what? I've been into this for a very long time. It has never been framed out to me that way, understanding and creating a relationship with a forest. Yeah. And I owe a lot of that to my teachers. I work really closely with a mentor. His name is Mike DeMunn and he's a forester who's been embedded in the landscape. And I think when you get to work with someone who has that kind of life experience and he's got a really storied history, but one of his things is he's part Seneca Haudenosaunee. Listeners may be more familiar with the Iroquois nation. So he comes from a culture that sees people as embedded in the landscape. And so spending time with him, it just sort of rubs off and it's really changed my whole perspective and the way I think about things. I love it when a good teacher does that. So how do you see this whole notion of how we interact with this concept of wild affecting our stewardship of the land? And here's a deeper question. Is it really our place to be stewarding the land? That might be a slippery slope, huh? 
Well, I think it's up to each individual person. That's the beauty of it, you know. What's interesting to me is when you dig into what the word stewardship means. Uh I don't know how familiar you are, what your thoughts are on that. The interpretations I've heard that really speaks to me is this idea that we recognize that we have some decision-making power and some sort of control. You know, if we own a piece of property or we're renting or we have access to land. But it's coupled with a real strong sense of service to the living organism that is the land or is the elements on the land. So it doesn't help us to pretend like we don't have control or that we don't make impact with the way we live day to day. Right. And so in that recognition of, yes, I have impact and I need to recognize that I need to minimize my impact or or make that a positive impact and do that in a sense of service. And to me, that means like with our sheep, for instance, yes, I'm making these really difficult decisions and we're moving them and we sort of have control over where they go and what they do and who stays on the farm and who leaves the farm and all these things. And we wrestle with all those, but we also have a sense of service to support a healthy flock and support you know, our best mothers and sort of create a good culture within that. It's an interesting thing. And it's one of those ethical dilemmas that doesn't really have a good you know, bookend. There's yeah. a lot of nuance and back and forth. And we kind of wrestle with that. And I think that's a good thing to do that over time. Absolutely. And one of the things as you were sharing that, one of the things that I realized was that I had overlaid stewardship on management, you know, making management and stewardship being synonymous. So it's our responsibility to manage a land. And th- those are two very different concepts. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So can you talk to us a little bit about the relationships between these systems and climate change? Sure. Climate change is very different in every part of the world, right? Oh, yeah. We don't know what to expect. And I think it's, you know, some people like to say climate chaos or (laughs) other things because it's just so unknown. So for instance, we're actually experiencing more precipitation in the Northeast as a trend um, and also cooler temperatures on average, which is not what the rest of the world (laughs) more or less is experiencing. That's why I like to shy away from global warming and call it climate change. Yeah. That's great. That's great. I agree. So, you know, what I like to think of is whether we're talking about flood or drought or anything in between, you know, what are the plants that we see being most resilient to all of those dramatic changes? And that that can be across different types of ecosystems, dryland and temperate. And it can be in like, you know, dense forests like we have in the Northeast, but it can also be in, you know, even even deserts, original desert ecosystems or savanna ecosystems, trees, right? Trees show up and they're there and they are able to really be these kind of long-term anchors of the ecosystem. And so when we think about climate, change and sort of throwing things into chaos, I think trees are like this anchor in that storm. And not, of course, what we have to be thinking about as land managers and stewards is what species might have the best resilience or might be the most adapted to our site conditions and to these potential changes. But as a kind of template, we can say that woody plants and trees, I think, really have a place to stay and a lot to offer us in terms of resiliency to climate change. Wow, cool. So what are some of the practical things to know about getting started in forest farming. One thing I like to say is that all canopies are not created equal. So the relationship between the trees that we have and how dense they're planted, or, you know, if it's a natural forest, so to speak, then, you know, what they show up as, how much shade they cast is a really important consideration. You know, if I'm in a backyard, one one concept I I like that kind of is an urban agroforestry technique is forest gardening. I'm sure you're familiar with that concept. Oh, yeah. You know, in a forest garden, we want to have fruit trees in the overstory, and we want to have some woody plants, we want to have some herbaceous plants, but 
you know, if we pack our fruit trees in too tight, we'll shade everything else out on the ground. And so that's problematic, depending on the density and the kind of complexity of that structure, we really have to think about the shade dynamic. On the flip side, if I want to grow mushrooms, then pretty much my interest is in as much shade as possible. Mm-hmm. And so then I wouldn't be so worried about getting a lot of light to the forest floor. I would think about shading it as much as possible. Right. So if somebody has a really shady backyard, don't fret, grow mushrooms. Bingo. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always less work to start with what you got and work with that than try to completely manipulate things, you know, and say, well, I'm going to cut everything down and try to get all this sunlight in. If you got shade, you know, see that as an opportunity, see that as an advantage and figure out what you can do with that space. Mushrooms are (laughs) probably the number one thing you can do. They love that. Right. Here in the desert, full shade around your house is a bonus because your electrical bill is going to be a whole lot less. Sure. Absolutely. So you got two books on farming the woods and silvopasture. Tell me about them. Yeah. So the first one came out in 2014, Farming the Woods. And I co-wrote that with Ken Mudge, who retired from Cornell as a longtime professor. And that one was really a project where he asked for some support and kind of tackling this large issue. I call that book sort of the buffet of options. There's lots of directions you could go. And, and I don't think everything in that is perfect for every person. I think you pick and choose a bit. So we focus on sort of different aspects of what one could do in a forested setting or with trees in the landscape. And so we talk about mushrooms, we talk about medicinal plants and propagation and sort of nursery work. We look at animals very briefly. We talk about nuts and fruits and berries and these kind of things. And I think in that book, we really also talk a lot about ecology of the forest. Some of the questions you asked early on in this interview, thinking about sort of those overarching principles and ideas. And when we crafted that book, it was a really wonderful and challenging project because we were kind of going through all these different little things and trying to give justice to them, but also not get hung up because we had to kind of move on. (laughs) Right. You know, our goal there was to give people kind of a a bunch of ideas and there's other great sort of supplementary resources to, if you really want to get into, you know, this thing or that thing. One of the things though, we did a chapter on animals and thinking about animals and the benefits they can have in a forested system. We said, oh, there isn't actually that next step of resource to get more into depth about how these things can relate, how animals and grazing systems and trees can all relate. And so that was what led to the next book. I kind of started thinking about it almost (laughs) when Farming the Woods came out and and it seemed like, you know, that might potentially be the next thing and started just reading and writing about it. And, you know, writing a book is a real marathon, but it's also, I feel a little selfish sometimes because, you know, I said, hey, I want to learn this stuff from my own farm. Exactly. And I like to read and write. And so, you know, for me, the way I process information is writing about it. And and so I was just interested in learning and the book and the writing becomes a motivation for me to learn the thing and then and then help share it with other people and hopefully make it easier for people to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, and, and so that sounds to me like that's your never stop learning mantra. I'm going to write about it. So I have to go learn about it. Yeah. And teaching too. I mean, you can't be teaching to actually learn something when you're so like, oh, I got to tell people about this thing. I better, uh, <laughs> better really know my stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So for all of you out there that are wannabe teachers, go out and learn something and teach about it. That's how both Steve and I got started, it sounds like. We just started learning and then started teaching about it. Anything else, Steve? It's interesting because we're on the Urban Farm Podcast. So when I think about that, I think about scale. And what I'm excited about agroforestry is there's sort of something for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a backyard or a back porch, you could start to think about the benefits of these things. And if you had, you know, hundreds of acres, you could also see that. And so just encourage folks to consider, you know, trees and woody plants as sort of the foundation, but there's just so many different directions to potentially go in. And and I'm totally biased because threaded through all of that. And what I'm seeing is, is just as important. We focus on the trees a lot in the forest, but I'm so enamored with the fungi and how little we know and how little we've paid attention. And the more we do, the more we realize that when we look at a woods, 
we're really looking at a, a fungal network. We just can't see it. We see the trees. And I think that the more we kind of dig into that, I think we're going to really find so many benefits to soil health, so many benefits to our personal health, because mushrooms are incredibly medicinal, and also just like a really important aspect of the work. And so, as we know, soil health is so fundamental to all these things we want to do. Yeah. And you can't have that without fungi. Yeah. So I encourage folks to dig into the trees, but also dig into the fungi as part of this exploration. Right. Occasionally. Occasionally, I'll get emails and phone calls from people and they say, oh my gosh, I got mushrooms coming up in my yard. How do I kill them? What do I do? <laughs> yeah, just know they're doing good things. Right. I want to mention just really quickly, maybe one mushroom that everyone could consider, no matter what scale you're at, you could start to play with and it's a really delicious edible mushroom. It's super easy to grow. Do we have time to kind of talk about that? Yeah. Okay, great. So my favorite, one of my favorite mushrooms is called the wine cap stropharia, or sometimes called the just red wine cap or wine cap stropharia rugosa on is the Latin name. And this is a mushroom that's found native in much of North America and mostly in cooler temperate climates. But the good news is that folks in drier climates can also play with stropharia. Just got to find areas of your system where you have really good shade and where you're you know, watering a lot. Uh-huh. And stropharia loves to grow with other plants. So if you're mulching something, which you probably are, if you're thinking about soil health and moisture and all these things, if you're putting wood chips down or some kind of shredded carbon, you know, organic material, you can uh-huh. put stropharia right into that. You know, you buy spawn like you would buy seed and that's the mycelium. Right. And you can seed it right into this mulch. And usually within, you know, four to six months, you can actually have a patch of mushrooms growing. And not only are you getting something delicious out of the mix, but those mushrooms are decomposing that organic material and feeding the soil. Yeah. So it's super easy to get into. And even beginners can really often have very good success in the first season. And so I I really encourage folks to check that out. And through our Cornell work, we have a mushroom site called cornellmushrooms.org. Mm-hmm. And people can totally, they can go there and find videos and fact sheets and learn exactly how to do that and kind of brush up on the on the process. So Nice. Sounds like maybe another book on mushrooms. <laughs> well, there's actually a great one uh, by Trad Cotter called Organic Mushroom Farming that I think is a really great beginning guide. I mean, yeah. sky's the limit, but yeah. Perfect. So I just, while you were chatting, I looked up red wine cap mushroom and I've seen these growing in my yard. Yeah, very common. Very common in, you know, you get your mulch delivered from a landscaper or something like that. Often stropharia will show up right in that. So it's very much already out there. And we here in Phoenix are big, big, big proponents of putting 6, 8, 10, 12 inches of woody mulch in your landscape. Often people use gravel and we have them replace it with woody mulch because it builds soil over time. And then that's where the mushrooms show up. Yeah. The other thing about mushrooms is, is that the mushroom cap, the part that we see above the ground, that's the fruit. So it's like my peach trees, which I'm harvesting peaches off this week. The fruit, the peach itself is like the mushroom. There's this whole other structure underground that's going on. Can you say something about that? Yeah. So we call that the mycelium or the mycelial mat. Uh That is actually the fungal organism itself. So yeah, when you harvest a mushroom, you don't damage that organism. You're just harvesting the fruit, just like when you take the fruit off the tree, as you mentioned. And so what's great is you harvest the mushrooms and actually the organism continues to grow and continues to benefit the soil. And it'll, it'll flush multiple times in its life cycle. Yeah. And so it's a really nice reciprocal relationship. I see it being a steward, you know, this is my motivation is I get some delicious mushrooms that taste very much like portobellos at the end of the day, mm-hmm. but I'm also feeding the soil health and that's benefiting all the microbiology in there. It's benefiting my trees and the plants. And of course, so everyone's thriving just by my introduction of that into the system. Yeah. Well, and mycelium is a critical part of healthy soil. That's the life in the soil. Absolutely. 
Yeah. We had Elaine Ingham on the show a couple of times and she talks in depth about that. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. One of the many times <laughs> fed failures, and I think it's important to be good with that because failure is useful as long as you learn from it. Exactly. So for me, it was in, and actually in human relationships, kind of want to shift that and talk about that. We haven't really talked about that yet. We talked about a lot of biological and relationships to animals and fungi and plants, but I think the human element is something I've really been humbled by and the challenge of, you know, good communication. And so I, I'm thinking about a project where I managed someone else's land and farm. And I think our, our sort of dreams and visions and excitement got in the way of us really sitting down and having some clear agreements and understanding and really relationship building on our own to really see where we understood each other and where we uh -huh. didn't. Right. And I have many instances in my life where this is true. And I've really shifted. That project was about eight years ago. And since then, I take a lot of extra time to think about that relationship piece and that we're really clear in expectations and ideas. And, you know, I'm resistant to sometimes the contracts and things, and I don't necessarily need it legally. But sometimes writing something down seems to just help us all kind of understand if we're on the same page, you know, literally. <laughs> yeah. So that's been a big learning. And so we really take time to be patient with that process and have some healthy skepticism as we jump to exciting ideas, you know, as we go. Absolutely. So I had one of my recent guests talk about just this topic on how do you get clarity around, you know, how you're going to use some land. And she suggested Googling land share gardening agreements. Have you ever looked online for any of those? I haven't personally, but it's interesting you bring that up. There's a wonderful video series I want to turn folks on to. It's called Woodlanders. This is a friend of mine who did some documentation of folks who are using the woods around the world, different countries around the world. And it reminds me when you say that kind of thing, it sort of reminds me that we don't have a lot of models in the U.S., but there are models elsewhere. So this one video he showed was a mushroom farm in Japan where the family had been managing this land for hundreds of years, but actually the community, the village owned the land. Oh, wow. And I know there's community forestry projects in the UK and in parts of Europe where the village or the town might actually own the land, but the community manages it collectively. Mm -hmm. You know, I think those potentials out there, I don't know a lot about it and something I'd love to spend more time, you know, researching for us to all kind of think creatively about. Yeah, exactly. That's a really, really important piece. If you're going to work collaboratively with somebody, it's less about the contract and more about the clarity. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you consider your biggest success? You know, I think my biggest success is being able to pass on information to others. So as an educator, and again, I see this as sort of me being in the middle of getting a lot of amazing wisdom and insight and, and practical knowledge from so many teachers, and then being a link in that chain to pass it along. So it's hard to estimate, but I work with hundreds of folks every year. I'm really proud of that. And it's always exciting to see where people take it and how they, you know, filter it through their own lens and their own interests and goals. Yeah. So especially like, with mushroom education, it's amazing to meet people that say, oh yeah, I took a class 10 years ago and here's what I'm doing now. And you know, that's the ultimate satisfaction to me. So I'd consider that my greatest achievement to date. And I hope to keep doing that for many years to come. Excellent. You know, we haven't talked about Wellspring Forest Farm and School. Tell us a little bit about that. I think that falls under the category of a good success. Yes, we're in our sixth season now. And so it feels very young still, especially in the context of forestry, where we think about 50, 100 year time cycles, you know, we're pretty young. 
Young. We're in central New York in the Finger Lakes region and just uh, west of Ithaca. Some folks are familiar with that town and beautiful area of the country. Lots of water, lots of the Finger Lakes are these 11 beautiful glacial lakes that we sort of are surrounded with. And our farm is part production enterprise. So we produce food and medicine and it's part educational opportunity. So we have apprentices in the summer and we do different workshops such as we do fungal foraging and cultivation class every September. We work with a partner who has a tree nursery and we do sort of a hands-on propagation class and, you know, talk about all the kind of different plants and fungi and, and things we can bring into our little gardens or homesteads or farm landscapes. So we do kind of weekend classes and we have a lot of tours. We often have both local and, and regional and sometimes even international. We have a group coming this summer from a mixture of agricultural professionals from Japan and Africa and, and India coming to our farm to learn and just kind of see the system. So we're really wow. excited and it's really fun to have people come through. You know, it's always a mutual benefit because we learn a lot from everyone and their yeah. ideas and what they see. We get really used to our farm, but when other people see it and share their observations, it's always a really wonderful experience. Nice. So I just jumped onto your website and for all of you out there that want to come and see your farm, you have a yurt there, do you not? We do. Yeah. When we first got to the farm, that was our home. And so we built a house two years ago and now we rent that yurt out to folks who come through during the warmer months <laughs> and they can stay and check out the area. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, I'm looking at the pictures. It's absolutely beautiful. It might be a fun weekend trip for those of you in that part of the country. So what drives you? I think what drives me and keeps me going in the morning are, we talked to this before, this sort of sense of stewardship or responsibility. You know, I've built relationships to people in my life. So I have responsibilities to them, of course, family and friends and community. But then I do feel really a responsibility to the animals and the plants and the sort of living systems in our landscape. Mm -hmm. And so I can't kind of sit idly and say, ah, you'll be fine. You know, I know there's interaction. There's things that need to be done. I feel like in wanting to build those relationships and learn, I'm sort of responsible to maintain them. And so that's what gets me going. You know, that's a more serious answer in some ways. It's just like what gets me going is just the fun of it, right? Like popping out and suddenly this morning was the first day we'd had oyster mushrooms fruiting on the farm. And like, I just get to discover that. Right. And probably in a few weeks, the black locust trees are going to flower. And I don't know when that's going to happen, but I'll discover it someday. And that's just the joy is going out in the morning and not knowing what's happening next, who, what bird species is going to be out there, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's just this constant process of discovering. What I love is that we have had a hand in it. So these trees that we get to see or these things are, you know, are partially because of the work we've put in. So it's really satisfying at the end of the day and, and always exciting to not know what's next around the corner. <laughs> yes, that is the case when you're growing food and interacting with nature. For sure. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? So this is probably the hardest question you could ask me. <laughs> one I'm really passionate about and I really encourage folks to check out is called Braiding Sweetgrass. Have you heard of that book? I haven't. So this is Robin Wall Kimmler and she is a professor at SUNY ESF, which is a forestry school in New York State in Syracuse. And she's indigenous. And so she brings a wonderful conversation about our relationship to nature and the ways that we understand and the ways that we think about stewardship and management. And so that's, you know, if I had to recommend one, that's the one that floats to the top right now. So Braiding Sweetgrass. Beautiful. She reads it actually as an audiobook as well. So you can actually hear it in her own words. Yeah, that's always nice. Yeah. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? If I had one piece of advice, it would be to be 
patient and start slow and small. And I constantly have to check myself. When I get into something new, I kind of want to go big and fast. But every time I take my time and take a few extra steps and a few moments to reflect, it seems like the outcome's always better. So you might want that orchard, that nut orchard that's going to take 15 years, but we got to take our time and let it grow. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Steve. It was a great conversation. Thanks so much, Greg. Absolutely. It was an awesome conversation. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, our website is wellspringforestfarm.com, and that links to pretty much all the other work we do. But the books each have their own websites, silvopasturebook.com and then farminthewoods.com. And through that, you can find my contact info. And if you do want to make a stop by the farm, you can learn more about how you can do that on the website as well. Perfect. And that website again was wellspringforestfarm.com. Perfect. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash wellspring. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. I have said it many times, I am a lifelong learner, and I am excited to let you know about a unique global online event made just for those of us who want to grow our own food. In this four-day online learning opportunity, a collection of visionary growers, gardeners, permaculturists, and homesteaders share garden hacks, slow tools, gadgets, and gardening technologies. Join tens of thousands of budding growers and learn how to save time, energy, and money while doing what you love most, growing your own food and medicine. Visit urbanfarm.org forward slash garden hacked to register for this free online summit. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, Hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago. Then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.